I think that's profound. I think we, some ways as a society, have thought it's a foregone conclusion that as we get older, we get sicker. And the truth is, it's not necessarily the case. You don't have to go hand in hand. Plenty of examples of societies around the world, you know, in history, where aging doesn't necessarily mean a collection of chronic diseases. And some of the examples would be in the Mediterranean, the island communities, or in Okinawa, Japan, or Loma Linda, California, or Nicoya Peninsula. And in these communities, people disproportionately live to 90, 100 years old and are relatively healthy up until the last day. So yeah, I'd love if we could reformulate our thoughts around this. And I think discussions around nutrition can actually really help. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. Today, we're going to dig deep into the science of gut health, the gut-brain axis, and the importance of building and maintaining a healthy gut microbiome. This is critically important since nearly 40% of adults suffer from a functional gastrointestinal disorder. And before you doubt this statistic, understand this conclusion came from a study of 73,000 people in 33 countries around the globe. This conversation started a few weeks back as we met Mark Washington, who is the CEO and founder of Supergut. Today, we get to geek out with their chief medical and scientific officer, Dr. Chris Damon. Dr. Damon is a board-certified, actively practicing gastroenterologist, I did have to practice that word, who holds an MD from Columbia University and an MA in molecular biology and biochemistry from Wesleyan University. Prior to joining Supergut, Dr. Damon worked at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where he led its 40 million gut health initiative. He maintains an academic appointment with the University of Washington as clinical associate professor, advising the Department of Medicine and Global Health Chairs on food and microbiome topics. Now, before I invite him up to the stage, I do have to remind everyone here that when we dig into the science of nutrition, we are doing this for informational purposes only. If you have a specific health concern, you'll want to connect with your healthcare provider. With that, I'm going to welcome Dr. Chris Damon to the show. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Karina. It could have been worse. It could have been otolaryngology. So <laughs> <laughs> this world is relative, isn't it? Thank you for the kind introduction. Great to be on the show. I went on TikTok to share my new yellow chair moment where I just offer reflection before big moments. And I sat down and I tried to say gastroenterology <laughs> and I stumbled and I'm like, okay, digestion. We're going to talk about digestion, which, you know, does relate a little bit more to, I think, what most people would understand about the whole system. So, wow. I mean, obviously from the intro, you're a very, very busy doctor so can you share a 30,000 foot view of what led you to this moment and why? Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, I've always been fascinated by what makes the world go round. I think I have a curious mind, trace that all the way back to musings of a five-year-old in our backyard looking up at a willow tree and thinking what sort of things I might be able to craft the branches into. But I think a real fascination with the microbiome specifically began back during medical school, and it was a key lecture. There was a book that was highlighted during the lecture, a book by Paul Ewald called Plague Times. And it's a book that postulates, and this was 20 years ago, that many of our chronic diseases, whether it be cancer or metabolic disease or neurological disease, actually uh, were rooted in imbalances in microbes and not in the sort of usual sense of this microbe causes this disease, but like whole communities of microbes. And that idea just completely captivated me. That was before there was such thing as, I suppose there was a term called microbiome, but people didn't throw it around like they do now or gut health. And I followed that fascination through internal medicine, 
and then ultimately to gastroenterology. And there was a key decision point there, whether I was going to go into infectious disease, which would make a lot of sense if I was interested in microbes versus gastroenterology. And for me, it was sort of like, well, do I explore the jungles of the world in public health with infectious disease or explore the jungles of the gut? And it was the gut that ended up winning out. But as fate may have it, I ended up in an interesting uh, path to uh, work at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So I did end up in a public health role after all, and uh, was working with women and children and malnutrition. In the midst of that, became sort of inspired by this double burden of malnutrition, where truly there's equal parts obesity and diabetes, as well as the conventional sort of stunting and wasting of malnutrition. And I realized, gosh, if we're really going to solve the world's food and public health problems, there is a lot of work that needs to be done right here at home. Met Mark Washington at that time. He was working on fiber-based food and the rest is history. So yeah, excited to explore these topics further with you. So I have to ask, because as you've explained this path, it would automatically lead you to learn more about nutrition, I would think, during your medical degree exploration all that time. How much did you learn about nutrition in med school? It's a really good question. And my honest uh, answer is not enough. I can probably count the number of days of learning about nutrition, maybe on my fingers even. And one would think within gastroenterology fellowship, you'd learn even more, but it's actually not true. I think there probably is a lot that could be done to augment the current curriculum in medical school and beyond with additional medical nutrition themes. It truly is a deficit. And it's curious because, you know, modern medicine arguably had its roots in food. And Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine, medicine be thy food. And so even at its foundation, there was this understanding and realization that food is actually super critical. You are what you eat, literally, right? Not just figuratively. So yeah, I think there's a, a long way to go there in terms of our medical education, but there's certainly lots of opportunities to learn in the margins. And that's kind of been my inspiration uh, throughout my career. Well, I will say you're touching on the topic I covered with Mark Washington, as we talked about specifically one concept, not just that we are what we eat, but we are what we absorb. And at Orlo Nutrition, that's something that our sponsors really focused on too, right? Creating nutrients that are in their most absorbable form so they can do the good that your body needs done, right? So omega-3s and polar lipids, spirulina that actually contains naturally occurring methylcobalamin, a form of vitamin B12 that's really hard for vegans and vegetarians to get enough of, right? And so if I'm thinking about this today, the overall concept of my interview with Mark Washington focused on essentially better nutrition, better digestion equals better health because if you have the ability to absorb the nutrition from the food that you're eating, your cravings could subside, your health overall is going to be more protected, you'll have the building blocks that you need to build healthy cells to support a healthy microbiome and all of those things. But today, I really wanted to focus in on gaining a better understanding of the gut-brain axis and how the right nutrition and supplement regimen, the right types of supplements, can actually support our health and our longevity so that we can have the best health span. I think Dr. Maroon, who I interviewed on some of our first podcasts, I've collaborated with him over the years, he said he wants to die young as old as possible. <laughs> I try to get that quote right a couple of times and I get it wrong. Like, wait, what did he say? But he wants to feel young and vivacious up until his dying day. And he lives that truth by running Ironmans. I mean, he does Ironman triathlons, running a full marathon, cycling, I think it's like 100 miles, a huge amount of space and time, and completing those and as number one in his class, which is now in the early 80s. <laughs> Not many people are doing that. I think that's profound. I think we, in some ways as a society, have thought it's a foregone conclusion that as we get older, we get sicker. And the truth is, it's not necessarily the case. You don't have to go hand in hand. There's plenty of examples of societies around the world, you know, in history, where aging doesn't necessarily mean a collection of chronic diseases. And some of the examples would be in the Mediterranean, in the island communities, or in Okinawa, Japan, or Loma Linda, California, or Nicoya Peninsula. And in these communities, people 
disproportionately live to 90, 100 years old and are relatively healthy up until the last day. So yeah, I'd love if we could reformulate our thoughts around this. And I think discussions around nutrition can actually really help. So I think Dr. Jewel Furman in our episode said he thinks it should be the norm that we reach 100 to 105 years old. And if we have the right nutrition and we aren't medicating ourselves with five to six medications by the time that we're 50, that could be on the horizon. We just need to retool our overall approach to diet nutrition. And he also focuses on mostly plants and not too much, much like Michael Pollan, right? So if we get to this conversation specific to the gut-brain axis, what nutrients do we really need to make sure that we get enough of to support that? And if you could just define what the gut-brain axis is for us. Yeah, absolutely. So one could think of the gut-brain axis as almost information superhighway that has two directions to it, right? It's both going to the brain from the gut and from the brain to the gut. And it's more than just a single type of communication that's happening. There's literally nerves that connect the gut and the brain. It's called the vagus nerve. There's actually arguably you know, more neurons, perhaps uh, more neurotransmitters. I've heard, need to look at the peer-reviewed literature on whether this is in fact true, maybe more than in the brain, certainly a lot, right? There's a lot of neurons in the gut. So that's one connection. The other, our immune system actually communicates from the gut to the brain. And then lastly, there's actually hormones uh, that are produced in our gut and that are able to filter into the brain. It's almost like a three-lane uh, two-way highway. And it makes sense because the foods that we eat, we need a way of coordinating how the body responds to those. And so it's not just the gut-brain connection, it's the gut-endocrine connection and the gut-cardiovascular connection, all of these axes. Uh, are truly critical for coordinating processes in the body. But the brain is a really important one. It's the center of cognition. It's the executive function of our body. It's what tells us when we're hungry and when we're not hungry, whether we have an elevated mood or down mood, whether it's time to be active or time to rest and repose. So as we think about this, using what we think of as our brain, how would you say that the brain dictates digestion or that the gut dictates digestion? Is it a combination of the two or what do we know about that? Yeah. So we know that both in model organisms and in people that stressful states, psychologically stressful or physically stressful states impact the health of the gut and, and specifically can impact things like tight junctions and mucus production. And those in turn impact how happy and balanced the microbes are and how much inflammation there is. So for example, if you're going through a really stressful period in your life, you may actually experience that as changes in your bowel habits, right? Maybe looser stools. And that's kind of experientially what might happen. Or if you pull an all-nighter for one reason or another, and that lack of sleep can and some people cause uh, GI disturbances. That side of the connection is real, but it, it goes the other way too. And that's kind of what we're talking about, how the gut is sensing our environment through the foods that we eat and communicating the rest of the body to prepare for digestion or other states to respond to those nutrients coming in. Are there specific nutrients that our system needs in order for that to work really well, to your knowledge? Yeah, and when we think about nutrition, normally think about the macro and micronutrients. These were the great discoveries 100 years ago of folks that defined protein and carbohydrates and fats and the subtypes thereof, as well as the vitamins and the minerals. And that's led to really a revolution in food uh, that in our modern day, we don't quite appreciate anymore, but truly solve things like food security to a certain degree. Yeah, we still have these problems, but certainly much mitigated. I think where the next couple decades in nutrition science will go, the next great horizon is understanding what some have labeled the dark matter of nutrition. So the things that are beyond the macro and micronutrients, others have labeled it the bioactives. And I think these are the things that are the messages, maybe nature's packaging and instructions of how to use these macro and micronutrients. It's the regulatory pieces of food. These include what I've kind of labeled the four Fs, 
It's an imperfect system because one of those Fs is a phonetic F. So it's phytonutrients, if you bear with me, but fibers, phytonutrients, good fats, and fermentation products would be those four things that probably are really important beyond just the standard macro and micronutrients, both in directly impacting our microbiome, our gut health, but also an impact in the body at large. All right. So let's break this down for people so that they understand first what a phytonutrient is versus something like a fiber or a fat. And then fermented products, we can give a few examples as well. Yeah, happy to. So if we start with phytonutrients, one subtype of phytonutrients are polyphenols. And maybe people have heard of those before, but basically they're often the compounds in food, the natural compounds that give them their color. So when people say eat the rainbow, what they're actually indirectly saying is eat lots of good phytonutrients. So that's one class of compounds within the dark matter of food that we're understanding better and and researching and, and trying to understand how that fits into overall health. Fibers certainly are another really important piece. And those are found in plants just like the phytonutrients, right? The colorful foods that provide phytonutrients. The vegetables and the fruits and the nuts and seeds and beans, those are the foods that are providing us with fiber. And there's there's different types of fiber. You probably heard like soluble and insoluble fiber. One paradigm that I think is particularly useful for understanding fibers, whether it's fermentable or not fermentable. And people have conflated fermentable fiber with soluble fiber, but it's not true. Like fermentable fiber can be both soluble and insoluble, but these are the fibers that tend to be more functional. And then in terms of fats, fat has been probably just like every other nutrient at some point in history been vilified a bit, but I I think we're coming around to realizing that actually no fats are good and maybe we get too much of some and not enough of others. And that's really what makes things good or bad, just how much we're getting of them. But beyond just the nutritional properties of fat, there's actually functional properties too. So the instruction uh, part of nutrition that tells our cells when it's time to wake up to metabolize and when it's time to sleep, when it's time to be more inflamed or time to be less inflamed. And then lastly, there are these fermentation products. And one that we all know is alcohol. That might not be one of the healthiest fermentation products, but another is vinegar. And vinegar has real functional properties, as does its cousin butyrate. And butyrate, while largely made in the gut by our microbes, actually is found in some fermented foods as well. Well, and many probiotics are found in fermented foods too. In an earlier episode, we actually got to talk with the fermentation queen herself and get to discover how you would even go about making your own cabbage-based sauerkraut, right? So it doesn't necessarily require you to even use a vinegar, right? If you're making a live food. And so I think it's interesting as we explore even some of what is presently offered at the finer grocery stores. And even at Costco, I see these fermented live cabbage sauerkrauts available in their refrigerated sections. So we can explore some of these things a little bit more easily as time goes on. But some of them are even, I think, really nice to make ourselves and and not overly complicated. There certainly are pretty simple approaches to making fermented foods. And like you say, it doesn't require adding the already formed vinegar, but letting the microbes do that on their own. And a lot of the fermented vegetables, you add salt, which helps control which microbes are able to survive and thrive and which ones are less able to survive and thrive. And there's tons of different types of fermented foods out there. There's As you mentioned, the fermented cabbages like kimchi and sauerkraut or your fermented vegetable of choice, fermented grains, which are actually used quite commonly, at least historically, in Africa as a sort of uh, women of childbearing age meal uh, and for children, porridges that are fermented overnight uh, that are based in grains. Uh, But there's also fermented dairy products. There's even fermented meats. And just as it's important to eat a diversity of colors, rainbow, eat a diversity of foods. It's probably important to eat a diversity of fermented foods and probably historically ate a lot more because we didn't have refrigerators. And we just kept things in a root cellar, which may have been imperfect and things would grow over time. So yeah, historically, we probably ate a lot more fermented foods, even though we may not have been doing it intentionally. 
And so to be clear for people so that they understand what we're talking about with fermented dairy, as a, for example, you have your yogurts with live bacteria. You have things like kefir, which is like a yogurt beverage. You also have something like an over-the-counter product that's a supplement that's refrigerated based like BioK, which is like a supercharged yogurt with a lot of bifidobacterium within it and lactobacterium, right? Then in addition to that, let's not forget cheese. And so cheese is essentially a fermented product too. And one of the fermentation byproducts of cheeses like Gouda and Brie is vitamin K2, which is vitamin K in its most bioavailable form, which directs the use of calcium in the bodies. There's this researcher, a naturopathic doctor named Kate Ruon Bleu out of Canada, who wrote this book called The Calcium Paradox, which postulates that the French paradox isn't really about the wine. It's about the consumption of vitamin K2 through their fermented cheeses, which meant that they didn't get clogged arteries and that the calcium itself goes to the bones and teeth where it's needed to maintain structural integrity of our bodies and out of the soft tissues where it can pose problems. So for those that consume a vitamin D product out there, please look for something that contains vitamin K2 as well, or just make sure that you are doing things like eating fermented foods and also getting plenty of green leafy vegetables. Because if you eat green leafy vegetables on a daily basis, which are high in fiber and have other phytonutrients in them that are supportive, they also contain vitamin K1, which has a shorter residence time in the body, but which is just as helpful in directing calcium so it goes where it's needed most. Okay, stepping off the vitamin soapbox for a minute. (laughs) So can I propose yet another potential solution to the French paradox? Yes. This is an area that I've become really fascinated by recently, and there isn't a whole lot of literature on it, but maybe an area that's ripe for exploration. And that is dairy products in general and fermented dairy products specifically tend to have butyrate in them interestingly, right? Even milk. It's Butyrate is actually a saturated fat. It's just a short chain saturated fat. So it only has four carbons as opposed to the longer chain ones. And where does butyrate come from? It comes from fermentation. And how the heck does it get into cow's milk or goat's milk or actually even human milk? Well, it's from fermentation in the gut. And so cows eat tons of grass, especially grass-fed cows as do other ungulates like goats. And they actually put that butyrate, that fermentation product into their milk. And so this hypothesis that now recently has inspired me of perhaps an alternate or complementary solution to the French paradox. The other really cool thing is when you ferment stinky cheeses, which are perhaps a big part of the French diet, the moustache and the roquefort. <laughs> yeah. So the microbes that are fermenting those cheeses, part of the reason that they are stinky is production of short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. So yeah, I'm really intrigued by this possibility, certainly vitamin K and, and other fermentation products. And it's probably more complex than just a single thing, but I wonder if, if butyrate is contributing. Well, and now that has me thinking also about natto, which is the vegetarian source of vitamin K2. Natto Pharma was a company out there. I think now they um, go by a different name, but they have a menaquinone 7 vitamin K2, which is in many supplements across the board. It comes from either fermentation on soy or fermentation on chickpeas of another vegetable matter, right? And so you can produce a non-GMO vitamin K2 derivative from a vegetarian source as opposed to from cheese. They're also quite stinky. So is it the same thing? Curious question. So natto, I believe, is fermented by bacillus. I might be wrong on this, but I think it's like bacillus natto or or something along those lines. I could be wrong. And so it'd be really interesting to look at the metabolic capacity of bacillus versus, say, a lactobacillus, which is what's most common, or lactic acid bacteria that's most common in dairy fermentation and understand, oh, I wonder if it might be producing butyr. I don't know. But Probably after this call, I'll jump on Google and and figure it out. You've inspired me. Yeah, leave it to Dr. Google and research on PubMed, you know, (laughs) before you dig into some pretty interesting wormholes. Or now maybe chat GPT, right? (laughs) Right, it's true. So I'm curious about this. If we get the right balance of these flora in our microbiome, what are some of the benefits that you tend to see 
from people that you've worked with and also what you're doing presently? Well, the gut arguably is the gateway of nutrition. And okay, I'm a gastroenterologist, so maybe I'm a bit biased, but Hippocrates believe is credited with having said the gut is the root of all disease. And I would actually take more of a glass half full perspective on that, say it's the root of health, because it's through the gut that just about every molecule in our body, barring oxygen, actually gets absorbed into our body. So it's impacting the body in a super fundamental and profound way. And if you take that perspective, then just about every system within the body is going to be impacted. You know, whether it's neurocognition in the brain or metabolism by the endocrine system or allergy and immunity and protection from microbes in our immune system, certainly musculoskeletal system, the cardiovascular system as a pump. Right? These are all ultimately connected to the gut because every molecule within them originates from the gut. Think about this from the perspective of supporting mood health as a, for example. Somebody has a terrible diet overall. They're just eating ho-hos, Krispy Kremes, white flour, simple sugars, not a lot of vegetables, chicken nuggets for their protein. Let's just say the parent on the go raising young children making freezer food, right? They would potentially suffer from diseases that are associated with just having poor digestion overall, and it could manifest as poor mood, irritability, and poor sleep as just a couple examples that kind of compound together. What do you think that this might have to do with specifically consumption of fiber? Is it just that they need more fiber along with all these other phytonutrients? Or is it that it's the consumption of these white flours and sugars that is just super problematic? Ultimately, what makes something good or bad is just a label that we put on it. And it's a label in the context of whether we're getting too much of it or too little. And the calories that are in, say, white flour and sugar, these forms of calories actually solves food insecurity. The reason we have refined sugars is it allowed for shelf stability. It allowed for a good cost of goods. At the turn of the century, removing the bran from rice and we actually made it possible uh, to feed a growing population. Now, there's flip sides to that, and we're experiencing that in a big way uh, in our current society with blossoming of metabolic diseases like obesity and, and diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, maybe even chronic neurocognitive diseases and inflammatory diseases. Where does fiber fit into this? Well, fiber is one of the many things that's been processed out of whole grains and removing the bran. And fiber normally plays a really important role in conducting metabolism. It does this in part through the microbiome. It gets converted to short-chain fatty acids like butyrate. Butyrate stimulates natural gut hormones like GLP-1. It's actually the same hormone that you're seeing in all of these conversations around Wagovi and the sort of blockbuster weight loss drugs that are quite in vogue and quite controversial right now. Fiber is, is a natural way of stimulating those. And those are really powerful because they are right at the root of what makes metabolism work, what regulates metabolism, which is fiber and other things have been taken out of food, actually like potassium and some fats serve a similar function. In the absence of those, the metabolism is maybe a little bit confused. And this could be one of the roots of a lot of chronic diseases. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that the bran is removed from all these different whole grains that could be health stabilizing and also ensure that people can survive a winter without a lot of fresh fruit and veggies and, and meat sources, things along those lines too, right? When we're in the leaning of the winter but we're not in that position anymore. And yet the shelf-stable foods that are replete of the fiber are, of course, what is easy grab-and-go style foods. Now, we also engineered fats to remove omega-3s from them to improve their st shelf stability, which is part of the reason we have such an imbalance, right? More omega-6 than omega-3. 
And yet, if you do get grass-fed cattle, guess what? When they eat the whole grass, they get a balance of omega-3s and omega-6s in their diet too. And so the meat itself is, has a better balance of the two. So people can really support long-term health a little bit more effectively than something that is corn-fed, corn-finished, grain-finished, and more of a refined capacity. So I understand that from my conversation with Mark Washington a little bit ago, that while he is definitely supportive of going to more of a whole foods basis, that part of what you're doing with Supergut is really working to bring the science forward so that people can take that grab and go bar or shake and get a lot of the health promoting benefits of prebiotic fibers to add in and to even replace some of what might be more junk food, right? So talk to us about specifically fiber and prebiotics. What's the difference? How do these work? And what are you seeing in the scientific literature as time goes on? Just to first highlight your point of whole foods versus adding things back to processed foods. I think it's an important point and one that I just want to emphasize. We've been stressing the importance of whole foods for decades now, but behavior change is incredibly difficult. There's tides and forces that are moving against whole foods as well within the business context. But even just our busy lifestyles make it difficult to prepare those foods. And I embrace the 70-30 rule. I think if we understand what it is about whole foods in a more complete way and those bioactives, you're right, we can maybe design foods that are convenient, tasty, maybe not whole foods, but approximating a 70% whole food and um, accommodating our lifestyles and allowing us to have our cake and eat it too, perhaps. So literally, right? If you add fiber to high glycemic index foods, it will mitigate that. You'll have less of a sugar spike and truly will be incrementally healthier for you. Yeah, the same thing is true if you combine fats with them, but often people are concerned about getting too much fat in their diet, right? And so slowing down digestion is really half of the battle in that case, right? So if you're eating an apple, eat the whole apple, eat the peel, right? You get the fiber with it. And then put a little bit of peanut butter. I use almond butter. I prefer almond butter. A little bit of almond butter on it. You're getting protein from the almond butter too. It's not super fatty. They're healthy to eat a little bit of, and it can slow down the digestion. I also consider that the perfect travel food because an apple is packaged in its own beautiful, shiny, lustrous package, right? And then you can take a little bit of peanut butter or almond butter or your favorite nut butter with you on the go. And it's not complicated. You don't have to worry about, oh, well, is the airport going to have something that I can eat? Yeah. And I've read recently that the majority of the apple's microbiome is what we actually throw away. So a lot of the microbes, especially in organically produced apples, are in the core. <laughs> so I've actually taken to not throwing much away other than the stem from an apple. I'll, I'll eat the whole thing. Including the seeds, because don't they also have inborn, is it cyanide or arsenic? I've heard that before. And yes, that's true, but it's minuscule amounts. And I think most people, unless they're eating tons and tons of apples, will be fine. But you had packaged in there back a bit, a question about prebiotics versus probiotics. And I wanted to make sure that I answered that as well and relative benefits. And probiotics have been studied in different conditions. There's nice reviews that sort of summarize the grade of the evidence that exists for different conditions, like traveler's diarrhea, for example. And there, taking a probiotic and or Pepto-Bismol uh, has been shown to help prevent traveler's diarrhea. Which comes from stress, correct? It's a stress response. Traveler's diarrhea, maybe in part, but also from infections. The work that's been done around probiotics and IBS, there's quite a few studies that have been done. And you know, maybe some strains that work a little bit better than others and bifidobacterium, if you look at the complement of studies, may be working a little bit better than some of the other species. So there, I think there's definitely a role for probiotics within gut health, within whole health. I tend to lean more towards fermented foods and the live ones that are in the refrigerator section, which have a lot of the lactic acid bacteria. And there's a study that has been done by Justin Sonnenberg out of Stanford that looked at 
fermented foods and found that they increase diversity in the gut and they actually decrease inflammation in the body. And it's one of the better studies that's been done looking at fermented food slash probiotics uh, and their impact on health. I am also a big fan of prebiotics, and that's where fiber fits in. And fiber, as we're talking about, is what supports a healthy gut ecosystem or a healthy gut microbiome. It's one of the key factors that the microbes in the gut thrive on. And certainly not the only one, but probably one of their preferred food sources. And so to have a healthy gut, consuming prebiotic fiber uh, in the context of whole foods, and if it's difficult to get enough there, then maybe in some supplementation combined with fermented foods is a really nice strategy for promoting uh, gut health and whole health. If I'm to understand this, let's just say I, I don't know a ton about prebiotics versus other fibers. So we might have heard a bit about soluble versus insoluble fiber, and then we hear about prebiotic fiber. How do you classify these and what makes their function different? It boils down to whether or not the microbes love to consume them. If the microbes can have a feast on the fiber, then they're prebiotic fibers. It's really that simple. The reason why we haven't classified fibers in this way historically is it's not a simple biochemical test, like determining whether something is soluble or not. It's more nuanced. And so because of that difficulty in, in categorizing maybe, and this is a new science too, I mean, maybe in the future we will have things categorized this way on a food label. That's why historically it hasn't been there. And I will say not all fermentable fibers should be created equal too. There are some which might fall into the category of high FODMAPs. And these are fibers that are present in whole foods or supplements or in processed foods that are more readily fermented in the upper gut. And fermentation in the upper gut probably isn't as helpful. It can cause gas and bloating and even diarrhea and is one of the proposed causes of irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. So these are fibers like inulin, tends to be a high FODMAP, fructooligosaccharide, galactooligosaccharide, a lot of fibers that you know have good properties for going into processed foods, <laughs> in fact, and they're easy to formulate, right? It's easy to make foods with them. Well, I've even seen supplements with inulin in it, as a, for example, called out. So um, would you say that that's not necessarily something that's super health promoting in that case? It depends on the individual. It depends on what microbes they have. And I think it's important to listen to your body. And for some people, it's probably okay. They're actually good prebiotics. They grow bifidobacterium. They support in some people a healthy gut microbiome. Uh, and other people may be growing organisms that are in the upper gut and causing issues. Maybe those that have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or just imbalances in the upper gut. So the advice I give is listen to your body. If you find when you're eating foods that have inulin and take a close look at the food label, and that would be things like garlic powder and onion powder as well, super high in inulin, or even just whole foods soup uh, that has uh, garlic and onion. If you find that you feel kind of crummy, bloated, maybe foggy-minded afterwards, that's your body telling you something. Well, I remember my mother's French onion soup, and it would cause her to have incredible gas afterwards, so... Oh, but it's so delicious. <laughs> it's so delicious. Right. So I think we do listen to our bodies, but we also have things that we really enjoy and find to be somewhat like a comfort food. For me, moving away from milk has been hard because I love milk so much, but I have also found that I am sensitive to it. And this was revealed through some blood tests too. So I've started to consume less dairy in general. But last night, guess what I decided I was going to have? Some beautiful cheese-based raviolis, right? And they were delicious and I paid the price. So I just woke up not feeling right, bloated and all that jazz and sent myself to the bathroom earlier than normal in the morning for me. So as it stands, we have to be careful about certain things for us. But then two, let's say we might've been mildly sensitive to something in the past, but then we stop eating it right? Like I was mildly sensitive to milk and I stopped consuming milk. And now the cheeses that are like, I would call them closest to milk, like ricotta, they're the ones I'm having the deepest problem with. I'm not likely to be able to go out and have a tiramisu anymore. 
because I stopped consuming milk, milk, right? Or the cannoli, not going to enjoy that either, even though I am Italian, right? I just, I'm going to step away. That being said, I seem to be just fine working with a cheddar or a gouda or something that's more of a harder cheese, like a Parmesan. So I haven't said full stop, no dairy, but I'm having to be more selective with time. So given that, I mean, are there some things we can do from a microbiota perspective to reduce our sensitivity to some of these would-be allergens or things that are becoming creating food sensitivities for us? Yeah, it's a really tricky problem because the solution historically and currently is elimination. And so that's true with FODMAPs, right? The trick there is you eliminate all FODMAPs and then you sequentially bring them back. Within inflammatory bowel disease, actually, there are experimental therapies looking at very low carbohydrate diets, which eliminate carbohydrates almost entirely. So you mentioned FODMAPs. What are they? I think it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Does that sound right to you? That sounds right. But I just <laughs> think many of the people listening might hear FODMAPs and go, what exactly is a FODMAP? Yeah, that's probably just more gibberish to rattle off those words. But essentially what that's used for is to help us discover where a food sensitivity lies through elimination and things along those lines. Great. In simple terms, these are just certain types of fermentable fibers that are present in food that and some people who have IBS might cause bloating and, and symptoms. And like you say, uh, if you eliminate them, then you might feel better. Perfect. And then there's sort of canonical celiac disease, right? Where you eliminate gluten, that's a bit of a no-brainer. Or lactose intolerance, as you allude to. In some of these conditions, the elimination is actually critical, right? You have an immune response to gluten in true diagnosed celiac disease. And tries, you might reintroduce that. It's never going to change. You're always going to have that immune response. I think in other conditions, it may be uh, one of adaptation of the gut. And when you eliminate something, your gut becomes less adapt to it. And when you bring it back, it might restart with some sputters. It may be that going low and going slow can help reacclimate the gut potentially. But it's really on an individual basis. And some people know you can give it as low and as slow as you want. It's not going to change. You just don't have that metabolic capacity there. I hope that as we understand things better, the microbiome better, we'll be able to maybe even do a stool test and say, you are the type of person that you have some of these microbes there. They're just underrepresented. And we recommend that you go low and slow, reintroducing these specific fibers. And other people, uh, you might say, you just don't have that capacity, but we have this supplement that you can take that will reintroduce those species at the same time as giving these fibers. I would love to see a future where rather than this stopgap measure of just eliminating things, and again, there's some conditions where you really do have to eliminate, like celiac disease, that we could truly reintroduce these fibers and reintroduce the microbial and metabolic diversity uh, that historically has existed within our gut. Well, you just finished telling us about really the fact that we might need to take a more personalized approach to nutrition, and especially when it comes to reintroduction of certain foods and, and long-term, like if somebody was a vegan who decided they no longer wanted to be a vegan, or more commonplace, what we're seeing is someone who's operating as an omnivore and is working to become more plant-based, and then realizes... I have a hard time consuming as many beans as I'm advised to eat as just one example, right? So if we're thinking about a shifting diet or shifting desire to help you manage your health and create a better situation for yourself long-term, I'm wondering if there are any specific myths that you know about that you want to debunk. Oh gosh. So I'm not sure about myths. I think one option that may actually truly help reestablish diversity uh, would be, and this harkens back to the Stanford study, would be fermented foods. So that was shown to increase diversity in the gut. So and this certainly needs a lot more research and study, but maybe that's one pathway. And it's strangely, it's not the microbes that are in that food. It's what it stimulates, right? 
Yes, that's exactly it. So there's probably factors that like fermentation factors that are present that serve as prebiotics uh, for growing good bugs in the gut that are maybe natively there, but just underrepresented. So could this be part of the reason that doing something like adding a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar to your diet, as an example, helps? It's certainly possible. I am truly intrigued by not apple cider vinegar, but vinegar at large. And there's actually wealth of literature on vinegar and metabolic disease. And vinegar is another name for it is acetic acid or acetate. It's a cousin of butyrate. It's a short chain fatty acid. It's made in our gut as well as by fermenting foods. And it mitigates the absorption of sugar from the gut and slows the spike on your blood of sugar, just like fiber and fat, as you mentioned. In fact, maybe that's why some cuisines add vinegar to fish and chips and why sushi rice has rice wine vinegar. I thought it just made it more sticky. <laughs> well, and it makes it delicious. It too. does. It makes it really <laughs> delicious. I didn't realize that sushi rice had sugar and vinegar in it until I made it at home. And I was like, oh, this isn't a recipe, but can I do it without? And I tried to do it without either of those things individually, and it doesn't stick together the same. And so you end up having rolls that kind of fall apart. Yeah, sugar is almost a binder. I mean, I don't know the science behind it, but it just makes it more sticky. Fascinating. Yeah. Now, I wondered if you have any go-to supplements that you tend to use yourself or that you advise people that you're connected with, either patients or, or just in your community, to consider consuming to fill their nutrition gaps. Yeah. Well, number one, two, and three is whole foods. I always stress the importance of whole foods, but I am a pragmatist and a realist, and I recognize, try as we might, you and I, we live, eat, and breathe food science, right? We think about this all the time, but well, I won't speak for you, but I'll speak for myself. I'm, I'm certainly not a saint, right? To quote, I think Michael Pollan again, uh, not just eat food, mostly plants, not too much. I think he also is credited as my 11-year-old daughter taught me after her curriculum and nutrition, cheat every now and then. <laughs> and when you do break down and have something sweet or just treat yourself and you have a couple beers or something like that, it can also create digestive problems if you do that too routinely. Now, preferred supplements, or are you talking about prebiotics? Yes. That was the question. So if I am to do a supplement, A, it's going to be in the context of having a meal because food is meant to be in context. I think oftentimes people take supplements and they think, oh, well, I've got all these good vitamins now and it's going to fill the gap and things are great. But if you're trying to support thriving microbial community in your gut, those supplements are best taken along with all the other nutrients that those microbes are expecting. And I think people don't often realize that. The one supplement that I actually do on a routine basis is adding some additional fiber to foods. And it's in the context of having cake and eating it too. So if I want a bowl of ice cream, or I'm going to have something sweet, or even something that just has a lot of carbs in it that you know, might be refined carbs, like a bowl of rice, I'll add a little bit of fiber to that meal, or I'll do a little fiber shot before. There's good peer-reviewed literature on how that fiber truly slows the absorption of sugar. And so you have less of an insulin spike. There is some literature support, maybe less grogginess or food coma that we experience after meals and, and maybe less hangry, those dips that happen in between meals and sort of smoothing out that blood sugar absorption through fiber. Well, I understand too that you offer something like that through SuperGut with a little powdered packet that you can add to just about anything. And I understand too that your team is offering our community a 20% discount at supergut.com by using the coupon code NWC for Nutrition Without Compromise. So thank you for that. I personally did try the prebiotic fiber by adding it to some food and, and didn't notice it at all. It doesn't have a flavor, so that makes it easy. But I also agree with you that mostly when you take supplements, try to consume them with food. There are certain supplements that are recommended to take without them. Like for instance, if you have a really bad bruise or a hematoma, you might take some enzymes away from the time that you're eating food to help break down that tissue. But really, in that case, you're working with a doctor or a nutritionist, a naturopathic practitioner or something to that effect anyway. What I like to do is take mine with a protein shake because it's a great way to start the day, or at least when I have my first meal a day, which lately is around lunchtime. 
I will have a protein shake. I can blend in some of that prebiotic fiber if I so choose. I like to throw in some cranberries for their tartness and their other benefits, some walnuts. So I'm getting plant-based omega-3s. And I also take Orlo's omega-3, which I don't necessarily have to consume with food, but I also like the concept of priming my system because you're chewing or you're tasting something, your body's getting the signal from your brain to your gut and your gut back to your brain that you are eating. So it's time to get the gastric juices flowing. It's time to start digesting our food. And I believe that there's something to that psychologically. So even if I have counseled people in the past, like, okay, eat a handful of nuts, something small. It doesn't have to be a whole meal because again, you're starting the process, you're chewing, you're getting some saliva flowing, which also brings forward the ability to begin the digestion of food or, or things that you're consuming. So you'll get the most benefit out of the supplements that you're taking. Well put. Yeah, years of doing this. I mean, 20 plus years in supplements, I've heard a lot of stories, but generally speaking, I tend to come back to that too. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Chris. I, I very much enjoyed this conversation, getting to know more about how the gut and the brain work together to send the right signals, that the fact that we might have much more happening in the gut than we ever imagined, specifically as it relates to hormones and the representation of hormones. Perhaps that's also lending to your hormone type that we might be hearing so much about in the diet world. Karina, it's a real pleasure. Really appreciate the opportunity to deliver some really important messages to the world and your community and the work that you're doing uh, is critical for that. So it's a pleasure. I'm very grateful for being able to join you on the call today. Thank you. Awesome. Are there any thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with before we part? Eat more fiber, I guess. <laughs> Nobody gets enough. Yeah. I have fiberivores in my house now. That's what I, I call them. As, uh, <laughs> I haven't heard that before. Yeah. Like I think it. you might want to use it. You are a fiberivore, but my fiberivores have four legs. They're guinea pigs and all they eat is essentially fiber, right? So you're constantly giving them vegetation. They have to chew all the time. They don't eat any animal products at all. So they're like full vegan little critters and they're getting our apple cores these days. So perhaps they're even more healthy. Than Maybe so. You should start saving those for yourself. I tend to eat them too with the nut butter. Like I, I'm just like, you know, I'll eat the whole apple aside from the stem, which is a little too fibrous for me. I'm not quite that fiber. Well, it's the whole upcycling craze that's happening within food and nutrition. All these things that we've thrown out historically are given to our guinea pigs or our animals are probably things that we should be giving to ourselves. <laughs> Fully. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. To find out more about Dr. Chris Damon, his work with Supergut and more, you can visit supergut.com. As mentioned earlier, our audience gets an additional 20% off with checkout. Just use the coupon code NWC for nutrition without compromise. Now, I want to also remind everybody that you can find our complete show notes as well as transcripts from this episode and resources that you won't find anywhere else at orlonutrition.com. If you have enjoyed this episode, I hope that you'll share it with friends. And if you can go ahead and give us a thumbs up or a five-star rating, that will help us reach more people with this valuable content. With that, I invite you all to raise a cup of your favorite beverage with me. Perhaps it's even a protein shake with some of the Supercut prebiotic fiber. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs. Because nutrition shouldn't be an either-or. 